One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I'm very excited because this is one of those special weeks where we only need two guests because they're that good. That's right, it's Alison Rudd, it's Rory K. Smith, we don't need anybody else. Later we'll be looking back on the transfer window involving the top seven clubs in the Premier League. We're also going to be discussing rainbow laces, match fixing, Bobby Moore's biography written by one Matt Dickinson, and the new Indian Premier League. But first, let's get our teeth into the home nations and the Euro 2016 qualifying campaign. Alright, so we're taping this on a Monday morning, as you know, so England haven't played yet. But I want to start with Roy Hodgson because I, I'm wondering if there's been a bit of, a, of an evolution or a change in the relationship with the media following that game against Norway, which, lest we forget, was a victory uh, for England. He got very catchy afterwards. I'm going to try to describe this as best I can without using obscenities. But somebody pointed out to him that they only had two shots on target, and Roy questioned the wisdom of statistics and then used some language which probably isn't appropriate at this time of day. Alison, you're, you're, you're smiling. You look like somebody who's not surprised that Roy at some point would lose the, the kindly uncle persona. Uh, he doesn't like being contradicted. And so if Roy's trying to present the bigger picture and he was trying to explain that um, it wasn't a bad performance given the quality of opposition and the tactics of the opposition where they put a lot of men behind the ball, inevitably you're not going to have that many shots on target. And for him to then be presented with it as, as evidence that England were underpowered and unimaginative, he got cross because someone's daring to say you've not got it quite right Roy the implication also from that question is that he's trying to pull a fast one or pull the wool over the media's eyes and he doesn't like that in the most avuncular way possible he wants to present the agenda and for everyone to nod in agreement let me take you back to the bar in FC Utrecht's down at Heel Stadium in Holland uh, the year is 2010 and Liverpool had drawn 0-0 with Utrecht and it was as bad a performance as England's 1-0 winning against Norway. It was terrible. I think Liverpool barely had the shot. It was awful, awful. How many shots on target did they have, Rory? Not very many, but I didn't point it out to Rory. So let me anyway. just interject a second. For younger listeners uh, who may not realise this, uh, Roy Hodgson used to be the Liverpool manager. Incredible but true. I was in the Christian Paulson, uh, Paul Koncheski years. Happy days. And um, uh, anyways, it was in that context. It was, yeah, yeah. So it, it wasn't, I can't remember exactly what what was happening at Liverpool. I don't think there was any great pressure on Hodgson's job. It was relatively early on in his admittedly very brief tenure. Anyway, he did his, his daily briefings. It was a Thursday night Europa League. So he did, did the daily press. 
and he was kind of a bit tetchy. He was obviously getting a little bit wound up. And then he did the Sunday briefing. And we'd only been working with Roy for two or three months at that stage. So we didn't really know that side of him. Alison, obviously, you covered him at Fulham, so you'd have been aware of, of his... Uh, moodiness. Moodiness. Anyway, Tim Rich from the freelance newspaper that he was working with, was probably working with The Independent at the time, Tim. Wonderful man, Tim. Lovely, lovely human being. The least offensive person in the world. Tim asked Roy the wrong question and got an absolute barrage of F-words and C-words and B-words and J-words and all this sort of stuff. And it was that... So like fool, crap. Fool, uh, Jehovah. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, and it was it was it was a real eye opener, and it was a proper kind of tirade. You, that word is massively overused, but it was a real tirade at Tim just for asking the wrong question. And there is that side to Roy, and I think people don't necessarily realise that. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but he is quite foul mouthed. I don't have a problem with that. I am I am also quite foul mouthed, but he Roy likes to swear. Uh, the other thing that that I think is important with Roy, and it's that it, it was the, his time at Liverpool is often kind of portrayed as being. Oh, Liverpool fans didn't like him because he he wasn't Kenny Dalglish. There was none of that at the start. That happened at the end when it became clear that Dalglish was an obvious replacement for for a Hodgson regime that wasn't working. I don't think at the start anyone thought, oh, they should have gone for Kenny. What Roy has a habit of doing for a very erudite, very, very clever man is saying absolutely the wrong thing. He has a remarkable ability to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and you could construe it as him being too honest. But I remember at, the, at Liverpool, they lost to Everton 2-0. He described it as the best performance of the season. You don't do that when you've lost to your, your, your fiercest rivals. And it's so the same with England. He has this ability, after the Costa Rica game, a 0-0 draw with Costa Rica, and he dressed it up as, you know, that, that was the performance I wanted. You don't say that. He has this inability to judge when things that may or may not be true are inappropriate to say. Two other things you need to know about Roy Hodgson for this um most recent tirade to be explained is one is he still has never quite recovered from the way he was treated at Blackburn Rovers and it's a burning desire of his to prove that club wrong and the second thing is that outside of these shores he's treated a bit like a demigod I've seen him mobbed by people from Africa Europe you name it they they mob him the way that over here we might mob David Beckham or, or a film star they think he he's okay, uh, right. one of one of one of the, the the elder statesmen of football who knows a lot and I think I, he I, finds I, it difficult when the media do not give him that kind of respect being from Europe myself I feel like I need to stick up for an entire continent um, possibly for Africa as well we do not treat Roy Hodgson we do not afford him the same celebrity status we afford David Beckham Two or three people in Switzerland and a couple people up where it's always dark. No, these are 800 delegates from all over the world. Maybe they're just being polite. No, no, no. They were treating him like a superstar. Again, to just give another example of Roy saying inappropriate things, in Scandinavia, I think we can all agree, Roy Hodgson is very well thought of. Unless you're Tor Christian Carlson, in which case you don't have a high opinion of him. Tor Christian Carlson is far too cosmopolitan to be properly Scandinavian. I believe he's Nordic anyway. But regardless, I've been in a press conference where Roy Hodgson was asked a very kindly question by a Danish journalist and responded with a sentence, Sweden and Denmark, there's two countries I'll be glad I never have to work in again, which is just a deeply offensive thing to say. <laughs> and this is, this is the thing with Roy, that whatever you think of him as a manager, he will occasionally go a little bit I, nuts. I'm interested here in, in one thing. In, in somebody, I, I know somebody who I respect a lot, who is a big fan of, of Roy and has a lot of time for him. They blame the media here for making such a big deal out of this and they said the media are hypocrites because Jose Mourinho and Sir Alex Ferguson have also been known to get irritable and angry and in the case of Sir Alex more so than Mourinho foul mouthed and yet when that happens we see oh look how strong Sir Alex is look how strong Mourinho is is that a fair 
criticism of the media's hypocrisy? Or should I just have told them, like, well, when Roy's won as much as Mourinho and Sir Alex, he can behave any way he likes? I think people s see what they want to see. I, I, I remember, I've never heard Mourinho swear, not to admit, but he probably has. He's done it in other languages. But I remember with, um, with Fergie, every, t every time Fergie kicked off and declared that, that yous are all something idiots and what have you, people reported it and it was described as a foul mouth rant. It didn't cost him his job. I don't. Yeah, I think that this stuff is picked up on whoever it is as a manager. Ke Kenny Dalglish was terrible with Liverpool. But it seems to me like the media has been time. a bit, from, from what I've read, is they've been a bit like harder on Hodgson than you would be on Ferguson. I'm wondering, is it because he hasn't achieved what... He's an easy target, I guess, yeah. And he's more vulnerable. There's another point there, and I, I, I don't want to sort of dominate the floor, Alison, but there's a simultaneous idea that Hodgson's had a really easy ride after the World Cup and that the media have crucified it, that, that you hear both of those views expressed. Right. Which is th those, are, those are my views, and I'm wondering if those things have changed. If kind of the media is like, oh, it's a slow week, there's no football on. Um, we gave this guy a, a pass after the World Cup and after an absolutely horrible, horrible Euros. Why don't we start picking on him? But I think, I think the, the issue now is that m the media in general, if you read, read across the media, there's a, a whole broad church of views. The media in general kind of accepted that Hodgson was staying after the World Cup and thought, right, fine. The general sort of wisdom appeared to be there's no one, there's no one better, so you might as well stick with him. But that doesn't get him a free pass. And they, they were terrible. Against, they were terrible against Norway. They, they did have two shots on goal. They, they, looked, they lacked all forms of dynamism and energy. And I think despite the fact that the media has broadly accepted that Hodgson's staying, people are entitled to ask, where are England going? I, I want to throw something else. Oli Kay isn't with us uh, uh, today, but thankfully his thoughts are, because I read his <laughs> column. I think it was Paul Scholes who raised the issue of uh, he thinks Wayne Rooney should be playing in midfield. Um, Matthew Syed today in our, in our paper compares Wayne Rooney to Paul Scholes uh, for his subtle passing. And Ollie made the point, and, and supposedly Rooney said, like, oh, yeah, when I get older, my legs go. I can, you know, I might want to play deeper in midfield. I, I think it's a horrible idea. I don't think he has the characteristics for it as long as he's playing further up and he's scoring. I don't see any reason why he should be playing in midfield. Uh, he may be a good passer, but he's certainly not, in my opinion, on a par with the best passers out there, and certainly not post goals. Is this a non-starter? Because he's not going to be playing that position at club level, and so why should just something England shouldn't even think of considering? Well, I can see a scenario where, because he's England captain and will be for quite a long time, and Roy Hodgson will be with England until at least 2016, Rooney may well convince Hodgson that that's where he should be playing and that he can be more influential there and as the England captain he wants to be able to make a mark on a match and make a difference but I, I would agree with you Gab because I'm just struggling to think of the last time Wayne Rooney made a defence splitting pass he doesn't I think he wants to be like that as I've said before Wayne Rooney went up in my estimation when I heard he watches um, tapes of, of Yari Litmanen and is a huge admirer of how he played but he's not Yari Litmanen he's right to want to be like him but he's not and yeah he's, 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 a, no, he's a straightforward no-nonsense number nine who should be encouraged to be that it can't help his productivity in front of goal if he's constantly having to wonder about whether he himself should be there I think it's a great idea that as your legs go you don't play in central midfield where you don't really need to run and that's a brilliant <laughs> idea <laughs> yeah, that says it um, speaking of, of uh, midfield there's a little diatribe uh, as well involving um, Jack Wilshire and, uh, and Jamie Redknapp where I, I thought it was it was kind of interesting. Jamie Redknapp, of course, is a pundit for Sky. I thought it was interesting seeing Wilshire respond in public to criticism by Jamie Redknapp, who you know it's not like he's his boss; he's just another voice in the media. And I thought he's actually showing quite a bit of personality in doing this. I wasn't critical of him, and I said like you know just Captain Jack's got some 
he's got some stones and he's going to speak up. And Am I seeing the class a little too much as half full when it comes to Wilshire? No, I think he showed a bit of guts as well because he got slaughtered for speaking his mind about who should qualify for playing for England and who who is English and who isn't. Like Kevin there, Peterson. Are po- there are, poli- yeah, yeah, there are politics funny. involved in that and people don't like footballers getting into that sort of area. At least this was a personal issue. It's about him, so he has every right to say what he thinks. And his retort was a good one, which was Redknapp also suffered injury and his career probably could have been better if he hadn't been injured. And so who is he to question how another professional is coming back from injury also it's easy in a studio isn't it because you've got to say something but I think I'm really tired of hearing that Wilshire and Ramsey cannot operate in the same team and I'm pretty sure if Ramsey was Italian or Dutch these things it's because he's British it's as though the idea that you can't have two British midfielders somehow they cancel each other out like Lampard and Gerrard did it's a fallacy stupid so of course kind they of can stupid because they kind of have different skill sets they do exactly. and I think they, actually, they, 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 they complement each other much much better than Lampard and Gerrard ever did Wilshire can play that role sort of controlling tempo I don't think Wilshire's done nearly enough yet to prove that he is the, the sort of star and hero in the making that everyone thinks he is but him and Ramsey do look like they, they have the skill sets to dovetail rather than clash I would have said. But it would make you very angry if you were Jack Wilshire that it's almost becoming an accepted wisdom that it might be difficult for him to operate in the same team as Aaron Ramsey. Yeah, I think we, we generally as a media make too much of people disagreeing. Like, it's fine that Wilshire's had a little pop back at Redknapp. It's fine that Wilshire's got his own opinion on, on various subjects. That's great that we should be encouraging that, not sort of hitting back at anyone who dares to speak their mind. That, that makes our jobs a lot harder. So I don't buy the idea that Wilshire can't play with Ramsey at all. And I d- will defend to the death Jack Wilshire's right to express his own, his own view. One final thing on, on England, and maybe you can explain this for because I missed sort of the genesis of this. This idea of Brendan Rogers coaching England, is this just something somebody was bored one day and, and, and made up? We've had the experiment with going abroad, going to a proper foreign foreigner yeah. who doesn't speak with an English accent and doesn't speak English that well, and we thought, that's gone wrong, that's gone wrong. We need to have someone who's totally, totally English, that's gone wrong. So the new, the new vogue, if you like, is it doesn't matter what nationality the manager is as long as they're very familiar with English well, youngsters and can nurture it's them. Kind of a Goldilocks thing. One was too hot, one was too cold, and now this one looks like they're just about exactly. right. But it is the sort of it is the, something you hear in whispers around football that the FA like Rogers, and that the England job might appeal to Brendan Rogers's. Let's put this delicately. Ego. To end the Brendan Rogers portion of the discussion, we'll have a reading from the book of Roy K. Smith, and this is in the Times game supplement today. Much speculation this week that Brendan Rogers is the man to lead England back to the top. We agree he has experience restoring institutions that were successful a long time ago and dealing with fans who refuse to let that go. All right, feel free to abuse Rory via Twitter, Liverpool fans, but please be kind. He's being tongue in cheek. Right, there's a bunch of other uh, internationals this weekend. Germany beat Scotland 2-1. Marco Royce may or may not have injured his ankle. Um, Northern Ireland beat uh, Hungary 2-1. Uh, Portugal, yes? Lost to Albania. Portugal lost to Albania, that's right. And I tell you what, if, if England think they've got a glum manager in Hodgson, try being managed by Paolo Bento, mm-hmm. who is the world's most depressing human being. How did Paolo Bento inspire a player? His managing isn't about in inspiration, it's about going out there and, and, and giving instructions and making sure people follow them. This is all part of the uh, the week of football, which I, I think is a very stupid name, and Johnny Fantino clearly not a marketing guy. But what it means is that the matches are actually spread out over several games. So if you want, you can actually see this rather than cramming them all on, on, on in, in the same day. I think it's good and it's a no-brainer, but I guess because it comes from a football institution, it's rubbish. 
Uh, Rory, I know how you feel because you wrote about it. Alison, are you enjoying your week of football? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all to have 600 matches all kicking off at the same time. The problem is that there are too many of them. And yet it took football like a million years to realize this, right? That it was better to spread the games out so we can actually watch them. Yeah, no, that's fine, that's fine. I mean, you, I don't, I'm not even going to try and argue that. That makes sense. If there are games to watch, stagger them so we can see as many Here's as we want to or don't want to. But I just don't get why we have to have so many of them to start with. Here's what doesn't make sense to me. And um, those of you familiar with the Red Zone channel or the Conference channel, as they call it in Germany, will know what I'm talking about. Last night... I'm watching my Sky Italian. They have a program where all the internationals, you can see all the goals as they go in. They go from game to game when something exciting supposed to, is about to happen. Uh, they, they flick over and so on. I've been telling Sky to do this for years for the Champions League. Yeah, when Arsenal played Napoli in the Champions League last December, I was sat in a pizzeria in Naples having interviewed Donzano Hidwain that day with the gentlemen and ladies of the British Press Tour. And because the Juve Dallatasaray game had been snowed off, Sky Italia, instead of showing the Juve Dallatasaray game, did that. They went to that They do it every conference. time. They just do it on a different channel. Even Basically, even when all you saw was not much happening and then replays of goals because they flicked to the games after the goal had been struck. Right, so you can see everything, not just that, but you also get, when, if you if you the audio, you've got people who are watching the game, commentator, called commentators, they tell you what's going on, you go over there before a penalty, before a corner kick and so on. It's actually very, yeah, very Yeah, corners good. are a guarantee of excitement. You're basically saying we should all become people who listen to singles and not to albums. Exactly. Absolutely. A goal doesn't matter, taken in isolation. The goal matters if you watch the preceding 78 minutes and you know why it happened and, and you've, earned it. you've earned your goal yeah. enough of this moving on to our debate uh, Euro 2016 uh, there will be 24 countries in it um, and I think due to the state conservatism of a lot of people on um, just my own two cents here people talked about it as if it was uh, as if it was a tragedy because qualifying will be too long and too meaningless and, and too rubbish and the quality of the tournament will be diluted. Um, Alison, where, where do you stand? Oh, it's a difficult one because I, I like the premise that every nation should have a chance to be represented and have a chance to pit their wits against whoever the opposition can be, whether it's high and mighty or not. But I'd, ultimately, I, I come down on the side of I just don't see how it helps the progress of football in Gibraltar if you're stuffed seven okay. nil. And we're not talking about Gibraltar. We are. We are because that's the that's Gibraltar why won't that's be why. Though, right? No, but they're part of the qualification process. And okay, they're part so of the so reason sorry, why. Sorry, I just want to be clear on this. So you're saying that Gibraltar and Dora and those people shouldn't be in qualifying. But I'm just talking specifically about expanding the tournament to 24 teams. Do you have a problem with that? Yes, it's part of the same principle because there'll be one of at least one of those 24 teams will be will leave embarrassed we'll as opposed to learning anything or growing. I understand that Alison's view, and I think that to an extent I share it that that there's part of you that that wants to have as many teams as possible in but then at the same time that does dilute the quality necessarily but I think the danger with this is that we, we talk too much about either the, like the top eight nations the, the Spains, the Germanys, the, the Italys, the Frances or obviously France aren't qualifying and then the bottom eight nations so the Andorras, the Maltas, the Cypresses whoever, or Cyprus is probably a bit better than that now Liechtenstein, whoever they're the teams that will never get anywhere they don't get battered anyway that's kind of a separate problem the vast majority of countries are Bulgaria and Romania and Sweden who sometimes and Wales and Wales and these, that's, the va- that's the vast majority of UEFA's constituents and the problem with the 16 team Euros was that so many of those were locked out because I mean qualifying's always been boring it's the same the big teams always make it you occasionally get one like a decade who won't make it I should point out it's boring for the big teams yeah it's not boring for everybody else qualified. it's not boring for everybody else yeah because everybody suddenly now it's much more interesting for everybody 
everybody else just previously. This time, the eight say the eight big teams will have a procession to the to the final. But the previous time, like the forty okay teams, have basically felt a bit locked out of the entire process. So I think it's I'm not sure whether t- twenty four might be too many, and I think that the group stage of the finals will be worse than it normally is. But the principle I think is is a good one, and I think we have to try and enfranchise as many of those nations as possible, rather than pretending that football exists only for the big countries. No, because no, that, that is, that's not good for. I don't know what you mean by good for. If you think it's important that football grows in a small nation and they, they feel like they're part of the process and not inched out like mm. you described, give them their own pre-qualification competition where yeah, they can win things. They can be top of the smaller country pile and that an upset can happen that would pass us by completely because as far as we're concerned, they're two very small nations, but one of them feels that they've done something amazing to get that so far. What kind of nations are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, what caliber nations are you thinking about? Are you back to Gibraltar and Andorra? Any country with a, with a population of 30,000 people, you're not... Like, okay, so if, you had a child, if you had a child who had come, had come from them. a... They're come they're from a a background where they needed help you wouldn't just fling them into the higher maths group you would give them something okay, that they not, could get their teeth into about, I mean I think Roy made the point before we're not talking about the, the, the really teeny tiny people I, I kind of have an issue with Gibraltar and Dora myself but we're talking about the, the, the fact that there's this huge glob of countries in Europe say between number 10 and number 35 who are all actually generally roughly of the same standard and all of them actually a lot of them have players you actually want to watch I mean you've seen Wales play football they're, 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 they're terrible right but hey look I want to watch Bale I want to watch Ramsey you know Sweden and go to the World Cup they have a couple useful players Denmark with you know have a couple useful players and these countries aren't so much worse than the countries who do qualify. So to me, expanding it, you know, and the other thing is these countries increasingly, they're not going to go to the World Cup, right? There's, there's 54 countries in, in UEFA. And the reality is only if there's 13 slots that might be, they might get cut. But there's maybe a pool of 25 nations who have any shot at going to the World Cup. Is it such a bad thing, expanding it a little further? Does it offend our, sensi- our, our sensitivity so much? They're not all manned by individuals we want to watch, and they're not all going to acquit themselves that well. No, I, it's just, it's I just, know, but you know it's what? Just been, it's just you know been what? Who eked out watch? slightly okay. too much. Let me ask you this. Did you, you enjoy the World Cup, presumably? Right? Yes. Greece and Costa Rica, to name but two, got to the round of 16. Is there any player on those two teams that you would want to watch or you would pay to watch? Well... Anybody who excites you? I don't know what the relevance is, but I, what I liked about Greece, for example, was the way they were greater than the sum of their parts. And they, had, not they like were, were not afraid to say, we can't do so many things, right. so we're going to do the one thing we do. And, the, and their beards. Yeah, and might you not like beards. that about Bulgaria if they qualified for the... For, or, or Scotland if they qualified for the Euros? I think that the, the problem isn't actually the qualif- qualification process because international qualifying for a major tournament has always been boring. It is but it is a, yeah. it's an inherently boring process. The problem with it is that the group stages, most of the teams will get through, which takes the drama away from the group stages in the finals a little bit. But I think that's a, an acceptable price for us all to pay to enable the vast majority of European countries, the teams between, say, England in eighth and whoever's the best of the tiny, tiny nations of 30,000 people, to give them a chance, enough of them a chance to feel like they they have something to play but hasn't for. Hasn't the qualification process had to become more minnows against the big teams in order to allow for the process, for the whittling down well, to look like it mattered so that there is a qualification that's, process? That's almost a separate debate. I th- it's, re- it's related, but it's kind of a separate debate. You can make a case that the Andorras and the Liechtensteins and the Gibraltars should have a pre-qualifying process like they do in Africa so that you take away some of those to make qualifying more kind of intense. 
but the, the, the outcome would still be the same, which is that the big nations always get there. I think you can make a better argument actually to take the big nations out of qualifying and just say you will be at the European Championships. I think so that's a more logical play thing a bunch to do. of lucrative friendlies. Yeah, which is what they want to do against which each other. Yeah. Because th- th- there's no point in in Holland qualifying. When did Holland last lose a qualification game? Well, it's they fun- like win every day. It's funny you should mention. I remember Holland. Do you remember Holland? Holland at the 2002 World Cup. Oh Both yeah, by yeah. Van Hal? yeah. No, me neither. <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I remember, I remember them not getting there. <laughs> exactly. But, but since then, the Dutch invariably win all of their games. They win their group in like... And it's worse. They run up the score, too. And, it's, and it, it's just vaguely pointless. So you'd actually be more sensible saying, right, we're going to take these big nations, take them out of the process, just accept that they're going to be there every single time, and we've got 16 other spots that we can fill with countries from, yeah, like Rumania, Bulgaria, Denmark. Yeah, but it would be... Who deserve, would, to be, it would, deserve the chance to go to final. It would be better to have pre-qualification rather than do right. that. It wasn't really about pre-qualification, Alison, but you obviously feel very strongly about that. But the, the, just to nail a myth, it might well be that qualifying is more boring for you if you support England or as Gav does Italy this year, but if you're one of the vast majority of people in Europe who doesn't support one of those big nations, then it's much, much more yes, interesting. because you've got a chance until the very chance end. It's pretty so freaking obvious. Just before they prepare to leave the union, can say, <laughs> we might get to a major final. For those who missed club football, we're now going to uh, talk about the transfer window and the summer's transfer campaign. We're going to try to do this slightly differently. Because I think when you judge how a club operated the transfer window, you have to look at the amount of money they spent, but also what their objectives were going into it. Some clubs maybe didn't want to spend money. Some of them wanted to cut wages. So the way we've done this is we've divided up the top seven clubs. And yes, Everton fans, we've included you. And uh, I asked Rory to do the Northern clubs because he's Northern. And I've asked Alison to do the London club because she lives in London. So let's start at the top. Manchester United... How would you describe their objectives going into the transfer window? I think realistically their objectives were to prove that they can still attract top-class players, to build a team capable of finishing in the top four, realistically, and to shift a lot of the dead weight from their squad. Dead weight like Butner and Bebe and Rio, guys like that? Uh, Rio is a bit harsh to Rio dead weight, yes, oh. but broadly those players and Nanny. possibly Ashley Young. Okay. And did they achieve their objective? What grade do you give them? I would give them probably a B. They've shifted a lot of the dead weight, so that's good. They've not shifted Ashley Young, so that's bad. They have <laughs> proved they can attract 
big name players in Di Maria and Falcao, so that's good. Uh, they have addressed one or two of the problems. They've got a couple of central midfielders now, but there is still a gaping hole at the back uh, that I'm amazed they've not addressed. Um, and I'm not sure that one of the big name players, Falcao, that they signed was the type of big name player that they need. So overall a positive window, but certainly not perfect. I think you're being very, very generous because um, even by your own standards, and, and Alison, you can weigh in on this, Radamel Falcao is a big name player, undoubtedly. But he was coming from Monaco, and he basically ended up there because the poor soul had nowhere else to go. Uh, Di Maria is a legit big name player, but I think he said himself he would have wanted to stay at the club he was at before. Order to PSG. The other dudes are all from, with all due respect, smaller clubs, and going to Manchester United is, is a big step up prestige-wise for them. Um, yeah, but, but I think they're all quite sensible signings. I, yeah. I, apart from Marcos, Ro- Marcos Rojo, who is overpriced by about £10 million. Alison, your take? What, what grade do you give United? C+. Plus. Yeah, I'm going to say C+. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way they threw around money. Yeah, the ru- I mean, the ruthlessness is good. Their out list is longer than the in list, which smacks of someone who means to do business. Right. But they kind of have so to throw around money, I think. There's been a kind of delirium to what they've that's done. That's what they keep telling you, that they had to throw around money, that they had to pay 75 billion euros for Di Maria, that they had to pay all that money for Rojo, that they had to pay all that money for Delia. They didn't have to pay all that that's money for Rojo. They, they didn't that's have to pay all that money for Rojo. That's n- and all that money, money for Luke Shaw, they had to do that. All right. Arsenal. The signings include Alexis Sanchez, Danny Welbeck, Callum Chambers, and their outs include Carl Jenkinson and Nicholas Bentner. Way. And Bakari Sanya. Yeah, well, they're they're one of my teams, aren't they? Yeah, right. What okay. were they trying to do? I don't think Arsene Wenger ever recovered from deciding he wanted a fox in the box, which was about 14, 15 years ago. And he went for Franny Jeffers, and it was a mistake because he discovered that if you buy someone just because they're good in a very condensed area on the pitch they don't fit in with the rest of the team and ever since then he's always looked for players who are more like everyone else he's got who are on the same wavelength so it sort of doesn't matter what Arsenal need they have to be a certain type of player and I think probably ever since the Franny Jeffers experiment failed, they've always looked like they needed um, a fox in the box. I mean, they've had some great strikers over the years, but that's always been an area where it's 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 very hard to find a striker who can also play all-round great one-touch football. And I think this window, even though they spent forty-six million, I think, yeah, I think they spent forty-six million. It's it's a big spend for Arsenal, particularly. You know, uh, you know, there've been this this year after year of complaints from the fans that they, they, they have the money and they don't spend it. That is a decent spend for a club that doesn't like to splash the cash. But it's the same old, same old thing. Wenger has gone for players of a certain type, and so it doesn't feel as radical as forty six million sounds. Grade? Oh, B probably. Okay. I'd say B as well, but the thing that surprises... I think Welbeck's quite, actually quite an intelligent signing. It really fascinates me, the, the fact that Arsenal signed a £16 million striker from, Man- from Man United and there's a substantial, probably a minority of fans who are unimpressed, basically because he's not foreign. That's what everything boils down to, is that anyone who's English, and we'll see this with Spurs, is dismissed, or British. Anyone who's British is dismissed because they're not foreign, and it's always assumed that the exotic is better than the homegrown, which I know sounds like an unusual thing that, for me to say. Yes, but it does. I, I think there is, a, there is a really important kind of no behind it the thing that I don't understand about Wenger is he sold Thomas for Milan on like August the 10th go and buy another central defender go and buy we did he believes Callum Chambers is no, no, a central he'd defender already, he'd already bought Chambers then he sold for Milan despite the fact that he needed the central defender at the start of the window anyway and he sold Nazi Mikel as well that is a um, massive oversight I think so you're giving him a B I'd say a B All right. yeah the Welbeck thing also I'm going B we need I to move on enough no no but Welbeck I think he's going to suffer from two things first what, what Rory said is that he's not glamorous and exotic and foreign and secondly it's quite obviously an emergency 
purchase because Giroud was injured and no one yeah. really believes he'd have bought him otherwise. And to arrive at a new club knowing that you weren't that wanted probably makes it difficult for him. But he'd I, I, I love the, I love the Welbeck. Right, too much love for Welbeck here. Let's keep going. But I, I do th- actually I think it's a great signing. And to me, that raises their, the mark. I would have given them to a B. Let's talk Everton. Unless I'm mistaken here, I only see one sig- significant departure, meaning that significant. And of course, they. Um, Made Romelu Lukalu permanent. They got Sami Eto, Mohamed Besic, who hopefully won't do what he did the last time out. Uh, Christian Atsu. What, what, what were they trying to do? They've spent an enormous amount of money. In terms of, dr- of a grade, it has to be, it's getting a bit boring. I think it's a B stroke C, because the thing that I'm surprised at with Everton, they've obviously kind of reinforced their striking options. They've kept Lukaku now on a permanent deal. That's excellent. Etu's a, a clever signing. Atsu's very highly rated on loan. That makes sense direct replacement for, for De La Feu. I don't think that they've strengthened particularly and I don't see how they can kick on from where they finished last season. They'll find it really hard to beat last season's finish when they've not improved their side. But again, no defenders. So I'm, B-stroke C. I'm, I'm going to go um, B-plus because I think they actually operate very well. Um, maybe they overspent a little bit on Lukaku. Maybe they've done a little better there. But, you know, Atsu, yeah, he'll, he'll help. And I mean, There's a whole background to him, obviously. They've also got Gareth Barry on a permanent, which is which is important. We which they knew they were getting, of course, but yeah. we shouldn't forget that. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the, the work is going to be done on, on the training pitch. Uh, Alison, your verdict on Everton? Well, they've, run, they've had to run really, really fast to stay where they are. That's the the sense of it. Yeah. And, but I think it would have been awful had they not been able to keep hold of Lukaku. I, I think politically that was such an important signing, but it does feel like you're throwing a lot of money to stay the same as you were last season, which is a bit disappointing. I think that's wrong. I think you guys are being really wrong and unfair but because I think you assume people like Stones and Barkley are going to get better and they're not staying in the same place. And they hung on to those people. And Stones really important. Barkley's Coleman. Real, real shame is injured. Yeah, Coleman, there's a theme to this transfer window and there's no one bought enough defenders. Let's go to Spurs, who of course uh, uh, did by no fewer than three yeah, defenders yeah. in Ben Davies, Federico Fazio and Eric Dyer, as well as a holding midfielder and a goalkeeper, but I guess nobody pays attention to defence. Um, <laughs> crucially, again, they pretty much broke even in uh, in net spend. Alison, um, what do they need and did they address it? Yeah, this is another another political window, I think. Pochettino's got a long-term deal. I think uh, I don't think he had any choice, really, but I think it, it's important that he's made it clear that he accepted that Tottenham had a lot of talented individuals and what they needed was the, the right coach to meld them together and he wouldn't need to spend a lot of money in the fact I think they've probably made a six million profit overall that's that's good news if you're Daniel Levy and you're tired of throwing money after managers and then seeing it all backfire so it's I think it's a very political window and possibly one of the signings of the summer was Eric Dyer, who cost four million and is already scoring goals and looking like he's been in the Premier League for six years or something. That's a bargain, I think. And it's all that this window for Tottenham is all about Pochettino proving that he has the eye for not too expensive talent. He can slot them into the team. He can make the individuals who were there and were underperforming perform to their capability. It's a slightly long-term view window, and I would give it an A. What's your grade? A. A. Wow. I, I'd go slightly less of that simply because they didn't. I think they were hoping to move Soldado and bring somebody else in, and they they were hoping to get Schneiderlin, and uh, and they didn't. But I love Ben Davis as a, I think it's a really really clever signing. Fazio, Istanbul will help. I think they sold well as they often do. Um, Livermore, Dawson, guys like that. Uh, Roy? Yeah, I'd say B plus probably. I think. Anderson's absolutely right. I think Pochettino is the sort of manager who's happy to work with what he's got. That's he he feels content coaching. Like Martinez, I guess that you know he he wants to kind of draw aside 
out, bring a side through. I think they've, they've recruited intelligently. I like Fazio. I think Fazio would do really well in England. Brilliant in the air. And that's important. Dyer looks good. Davis, I think, is not £22 million worse than Luke Shaw. <laughs> that's um, such a although I am assured by everyone who, who watches Wolfsburg regularly that he's, he's but a 20th of the player that Ricardo Rodriguez is, who appears to be the fashionable fullback of the moment. But, yeah, no, I think, it's an, I think they've had a quite a clever window, and for Spurs, quite a quiet window, and that's quite important. All right, uh, moving on to Liverpool. Um, obviously, they spent a lot of money. They got a lot of money for Luis Suarez. Still, um, I think the second highest net spend, if memory serves, uh, ins include Balotelli, Lalana, Lovren, Alberto Moreno, Emery Chan who I think has gone a little bit under the radar, uh, Lazar Markovic, and of course they lost Luis Suarez as well as Daniel Agger. Is this... I mean, they, they knew they had to sell Suarez, and yep. they sold him well, right? Sold him well. I've got the one thing I will I will say. This, I, my grade is a B plus for Liverpool. What I don't understand is Liverpool seems to be spending, spending an awful lot of money trying to find defenders who are no better than Daniel Agger. I find that really surprising. I think it's really sweet that Agger went back to Bromby and not somewhere else. But I'm not sure that Liverpool have really improved on Daniel Agger, despite the what 37 million pounds they spent on Sacco and Lovren. Mostly intelligent signings, mostly quite sensible signings. My two concerns would be that there's maybe slightly too many of them and I'm not quite sure how they all kind of fit together but what we've seen with Rodgers and it's something that he's improved on as a, as a coach you, d- you say one thing about a manager like three years ago and people sort of assume that you were wrong just as they change it really irritates me uh, is that he is quite tactically flexible so he's got players now who I think can play in a variety of maybe even three different systems so yeah B plus I think they might have overdone, overdone it a little bit but generally quite a good window for them I think given that Suarez was going to go Alison? I think, yeah, I think it was a decent window for Liverpool. I'm not sure it was a decent window for the players who went there. Adam Lallana had su- has such a fairy tale career and he could have ended it at Southampton and he decided to take the plunge and go for the big time. There's every chance he may not feature very often at all for Liverpool. Yeah, it's hard to see where he fits in, isn't I it? I don't see where you'd play him unless there are a lot of injuries. And the same for Ricky Lambert. It's a fairy tale ending for a scouser who loves Liverpool, but he may, he may end up coming on as a sub six times and that'll be it yeah but for Lambert at four million I think that's that's different it's to fine Lallana for Liverpool for no million. it's fine for Liverpool but I don't know if it's fine for Ricky and I don't think it's fine for Adam you agree grade B yeah I'm I'm gonna go B given the the, the, the money spent the, the one concern as you guys said is you spent a lot of money some of these players and I'm thinking of, of Markovic and Lalana spending a lot of money and then not giving them playing yeah. time and somebody's gonna have to miss out you run the risk of these people not developing and then you have to sell them for less or loan them out. It's a big, big ask for Brendan Rodgers and, again, if there's one thing he doesn't lack, it's confidence. But the one, the one thing I think we have to wait to see with Liverpool is to s- 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 say Markovic and Alana, who would be the two that you, you look at and think not quite sure where they fit in for the price they paid for them. They both would seem to fit a 4-3-3. So it may be that you see kind of almost two or three different Liverpool sides developing. One playing 4-3-3, one playing with a diamond midfield. The danger is that if you don't get a run of games, you don't find that momentum. That would be my... Yeah, that's the concern, I think. Moving on to West London and uh, Chelsea. Obviously, they brought in Cesc Fabregas, Diego Costa, Felipe Luis, Loic Remy, Thibaut Courtois, Pascal Zuma. And they said uh, goodbye to David Luiz and Romelu Lukaku. Their two biggest sales were two guys who really didn't contribute that much for them last year uh your take Austin? oh well i mean this is uh, this might be the best window ever in the history of the transfer windows for chelsea S- astonishingly brilliant business Mourinho came in he never liked david Luiz. he didn't know where to play him he felt he was a bit of a risk wasn't a huge fan gets 50 million quid that's great business because he was loved by the players and he was a favorite of the hierarchy you've got to be careful how you get rid of players like that but if you get 50 million quid for them no one's going to complain so that is astonishingly good business lukaku he fell out with lukaku 
and made out that it, he didn't really, but of course he did. So to get 28 million for Lukaku is astonishingly good business. And Torres going out on loan, again, how do you do that? You have to engineer that really well so that no one almost notices that he's gone, including your owner. And he's managed to do that. <laughs> and, you know, Diego Costa has been an instant blooming hit. You don't get hits more. Even when he's got a hamstring injury, he manages to score goals. This is an astonishingly good window. I'd give them A++. Yeah, you can't fault it, and they did it all early, apart from kind of the necessary bit with Torres and Remy late on. My only slight concern is with Diego Costa. If you look at Costa's career, he's streaky. He will score a lot of goals in a very short space of time and then not do much for months. If Mourinho can crack that, that's when I think you have to say this is a truly extraordinary transfer window, but it's an A either way. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Very, very good transfer window. I might just go A-, minus. I think maybe they could use one more multi-purpose defender, and they probably should have shifted Czech in an ideal world earlier but I mean we're quibbling here tremendous job I think by Chelsea this summer and finally the champions Manchester City Um, now they were operating under financial fair play restrictions their net spend this summer was limited to 60 million euros which may help explain why they didn't end up with uh, with Radamel Falcao and then let Alvaro Negredo go but they picked up Eliak and Mangala who might be the only one to start regularly uh, of the newcomers uh, well him and Fernando I guess uh, Bakari Sanya Frank Lampard Jr. and uh, Willie Caballero right yeah until the last day until deadline day I'd have said probably A- minus, given the restrictions they were working within that they seem to have added a bit more depth they bought quite intelligently I think they probably overpaid for, for Mangala but that shows the premium that's now on decent defenders because there are no defenders around until they let Negredo go and don't bring in a fourth striker which I think is a slightly Given Aguero and Jovetic's injury records, I think it's a slight risk. And they had one in Big John, of course, but to let him go... Let Rudetti go as well, yeah, absolutely. So I just th- that doesn't quite make sense to me, because I don't quite understand why they've written the grade off. I think maybe, I don't know, shift some wages, I guess, and to have... Guaranteed. But then to shift wages would have made sense if they were going to go for, say, Falcao. Brilliant piece by Ian Herbert on Sporting Intelligence, which you should all read, about City trying to circumvent financial fair play or get the most out of their market under the strictures of financial fair play. And getting rid of Negredo made sense if you were using it to clear up wage space for Falcao. But they then didn't do that, which I think does leave them a little bit under understocked in, in the striking department. So I'd say B+. Alison? Yeah, hard to argue with Rory. I think getting... Uh, Bakary Sanya on a free goes under the radar because he was out of contract but I think he's such a solid defender and Arsenal fans were very sorry to see him go and as we've been the theme has been teams not really concentrating on their defence City have at least been one of those teams that have taken the defence seriously I'm going to go B here and again uh, like Rory I, I think that they've added well um, they, they've spent well within the strictures they're also going to be hamstrung a little bit by the squad restrictions in the Champions League not yeah. as much as they might have been uh, but I think that's going to hurt them a little bit but definitely stronger out there alright enough of all this time for some quick hits uh, if you speak beyond the 20 second mark you will hear this and if you get to 25 seconds uh, you will hear this and I will shout over you and get you to shut up. So please be concise. The Rainbow Laces are back supporting the campaign to raise awareness about homophobia in football. Arsenal, in fact, have made a nifty video. It's on the Times website. I'm sure it's all over YouTube as well, where Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain says he looks like a ninja turtle, which I hadn't noticed. And of course, Olivier Giroud looks like a Greek god. Quite delish. Uh, Alison, what's your take on all this? And does it matter that this campaign is sponsored by a bookie? I think it's important that it is sponsored by a bookmaker I think a lot of people hide behind 
things like homophobic views claiming that they're not really homophobic but it would damage their commercial interests if they were to be too promoting of such things so the fact that there is a commercial sponsor for this video is good it's showing real backing for the opinion and not lip service uh, we discovered there's a whole list of players in England's professional game that are being monitored by the football association because they might be susceptible to match fixing Rory is it clever to announce that you've got them you've made a list and you're checking it twice and why not simply spy on them on the sly or the FA not that surreptitious no I think it's actually quite important that you announce that you're doing this and that you have a list and that, that you are monitoring it and you're trying to work out who's been naughty or nice Gab because that might frighten them into not doing it we have to be ever vigilant about the threat of match fixing maybe not in the Premier League but certainly lower down alright we've been publishing extracts of a new Bobby Moore biography by some guy named Matt Dickinson I, I really enjoy the extracts I, I hope I find time to read the book as well Alison, what has stood out for you? Well, I have to read the book because I'm a judge for the sports book of the year. So uh, what I've read so far, I have enjoyed uh, what stood out. It's the fact that Bobby Moore put up with testicular cancer and didn't really want to acknowledge there was anything wrong with him and that he was stood in the dressing room with his legs up on a chair and everyone could see there was something very wrong and everyone was trying to pretend it was a cricket injury for some reason. Uh, it's very generational and I hope that men do take lumps more seriously now. Rory, it's been confirmed that Seem De Jong, one of your favourite players, uh, will be sidelined for around about four months. Uh, your buddy, poor old Pardew, can't catch a break, can he? No, do you know what I said on, on Twitter months ago that I thought Newcastle had done quite a lot of good business this year and I've, I've since been roundly shouted down by Newcastle fans who, who entirely disagree. I think they started the window really well and then didn't follow up on that and so they do have a squad with holes in it. Dion would have made a big difference he'd have covered up for a lot of gaps. Uh, it's very sad that he is injured. Is he better than Luke? He is much better than Luke. Dion Better than Nigel? Uh, different sort of beast. Right. Chelsea have ended up with two top tier keepers Peter Cech and Thibaut Courtois uh, Alison, given that Courtois has been named first choice and Chelsea have backed it up with a proposed 80 grand a week, 5 year deal if you were better, um, what would you do? and what do you think he will do? Well, there's something particularly poignantly sad about a good goalkeeper always being sat on the bench um, I mean, Cudicini did it and then we all forgot that he was a decent keeper he shouldn't be there, he should have gone I know it's hard because it's that's his world and he was such a hero and he's still a great keeper but I can, I can see why it's ended up this way but he should be somewhere where he's first choice because he's good enough Next month sees the start of the Indian Premier League with stars like uh, Alex Del Piero, Freddie Lundberg and David James coming on board for what looks like a knockoff of the Cricket 2020 version Rory, I know it's a subject close to your heart Tell us more. Yeah, it, I, it's a story I've been researching for a, a few weeks, and what the one thing I've discovered is it's impossible to get in touch with anybody in, involved in Indian football. They really don't want to talk to you. Um, it is a knockoff of the 2020 version. What's really interesting is that the idea is to get loads of big stars in and have all the glamour and stuff to develop football in India, but India already has its own league. The Mohun Bagan East Bengal Derby gets 120,000 fans twice a year. Football is a big sport in India. This looks to me like they're maybe not promoting it in the right way from grassroots level. Gab, one for you. Something that slightly baffled me. Has Frank Ribery really been told that he's not allowed to retire from international duty? Yes, he has been told this, and it's and it's bizarre, and it's weird. And you know what? I, I hate to generalise, but I think I will. Uh, it's clearly a French thing, because we've seen it before with Claude Makélélé and Nicolas Anelka. Technically, if you're called up for the national team, you have to go. Uh, it's a measure that was originally put in to protect players being bullied by big clubs. That's obviously not what's going on here. Um, you're supposed to give me the warning sign at 20 seconds, and that's uh, at 25 seconds. Um, obviously, it's idiocy, and obviously these people should resolve it, but it's a bit of common sense and talking to each other. 
<laughs> I love this app. It's amazing. Why do you have it on your phone? Because they have to work with you people. Just to let you know, Dab has got 20,000 unread emails on his phone. A messy inbox, Dab, is the sign of a messy mind. 20,000? Why are you going through my mail? I wasn't going through. It just flashed up when I, took, well. when I took the app. I have a lot of friends, and I'm very popular. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Many thanks to my excellent guests today, Alison Rudd and Rory K. Smith. And remember, at thetimes.co.uk, members get exclusive football, rugby, and cricket highlights free as part of their subscription. If you're not a member yet, take out our one-pound digital trial today. Just search Time Sport online. And if you want to get in touch with us, as so many of you do every single week, hit us up on Twitter or uh, you can email gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. We love getting hundreds and hundreds of emails that we get every week. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away.